um, have an actual physical Bible or an app or something like that, just keep it open because we will be um, looking in the text for a little bit and it helps for you to see it with your own eyes to make sure what I'm saying is actually true. Uh, and also for, your, for yourself to, to, to see. Um, as I was reading and preparing this message, I, I had kind of an image in my head. I think um, we've all seen films where astronauts, they go out on a spacewalk, right? They have some kind of, either on like the side of the ship or the space station, or if it's like in some other universe, you know, they're out there. But there's one thing that's holding them between space and safety, and it's this tether. And here is like a, this is like uh, apparently the guy who did the first spacewalk out there by a tether. But that tether, that little cables, the thing that's holding them, makes a difference between going out into the abyss of space and being actually safe. The difference between life and death. The difference between the triumph of an effective spacewalk and the tragedy of not making it back down to Earth. Just that thin cable called the tether. If that tether breaks, that astronaut is out there floating around, probably never going to come back, out there in the void of space. There is a feeling, okay, maybe none of us have actually been astronauts, but whenever we, what we see those, you know, the, the level of, I don't know about you, but whenever I see that happening, like, surely something's going to go wrong. You know, it's going to go like, oh, the, like, the blood pressure rises a bit, like, this is bad. I've never been on a spacewalk. I don't know what it's like. But it does connect, I think, to other feelings that we might have. You don't have to be an astronaut out there to experience it. This idea of, of being out there and Loading, not really tethered to something, or at least like the fear of being untethered in the void, the darkness, the, that, ab that abyss of space. Nobody else around. There seem to be no senses of light, no sign of life. And everywhere you look, it just feels like a dark, black void with nothing else there. That untethered feeling is a type of wandering. I think that's something everyone's experienced. Uh, definitely in the last 18 months, but probably before that, and will definitely come after that. And when we wander, when we aren't tethered by a real hope, we will wander, and we do it in all sorts of ways. It's not good for us. It's not good for the people that we love. We can act deceitful because we feel like, well, I just need to get everything that I can right now because, you know, for all I know, tomorrow I'll be wandering and untethered in some more difficult place. Or we can give in to whatever feels best in the moment. But living in the void brings on the emptiness of the void. It all leads to a floating about, this listless kind of gliding about by ourselves. Now, we think things that tether us uh, are things that hold us back. So the, the best kind of life is the one that's completely untethered. So now you're completely free to be and do whatever you want to do. But if you aren't tethered to a living hope, one or at least both of these things will happen. First, the circumstances of life will overwhelm you. That's just, it's, it will happen. You will only see what's right in front of your face and nothing beyond it. The good thing about a tether is it goes beyond what's right in front of your face and holds you to something that's even stronger. The second thing is if you aren't tethered, you're going to drift. Nobody has ever drifted into a meaningful life. That has never happened. And when we drift, I'm mixing my metaphors here, we're carried by the current and we're not actually really in control. We think we're in control. We want to be in control, but actually now other forces beyond us are in control. And then maybe also there's the question of being tethered to the right thing. Maybe you feel like, I don't really feel listless. I'm actually tethered to lots of things and maybe like lots of really good things. You are connected. But the question is, well, I guess maybe the thought is not all hopes are created equal. Ultimately, 
there is something that is going to matter more. And we talked last week about living hopes versus dead hopes. You can have a hope and it'd be dead and you know, lead the wrong way. You can have a hope that's living and it leads you into life. Untethered lives lead to empty lives. Tethered to dead hopes lead us to live empty lives as well. So we need both things. We need to be tethered, but then to the right thing. A right tether into the right thing. But this we're going to learn about today. This is exactly what Jesus does. Uh, here's what God will teach us this morning as we're going to look at Jesus tethers us to a living hope. That's what Jesus does for us. He does it. Amazing. He tethers us to a living hope. This changes how we approach the future, but if that's also where our hope is, where our future is, it also radically changes how we live now in the present. So let's just jump into it. Uh, and by the way, at the bottom of each one of these is a website, redeemermcr.com ask. This is a confidential way for you to send questions that might come up in the sermon. You're like, I don't get this, or I don't believe this, or can you talk more about this? And if you send something there, um, we'll chat about it after the sermon or after the, before the service is out. Because uh, there is loads of stuff to get in here. We just don't have time to get into it all. Um, right, let's look. Verse uh, 13, the main idea that Peter, gets, uh, Peter gives us, and this is kind of what we're going to tease out as we go, is, uh, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, he says, set your hope. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This idea of setting our hope, of fixing our hope. There is a grace that we will receive that we don't have now. And this is Peter talking to Christians who are about. So if you're a believer, you don't have this grace completely now. And if you're not a believer, this is a grace that you can kind of, if you want to, you can participate in this. And also there's better stuff to come in the future. It's a future grace. Peter's saying when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, uh, talking about Jesus' return, what is the deal with that? What's, like, what's, what's that all about? Well, when Jesus returns, he's promised that he's going to set all things right. All the things that you see that disturb you. And there's lots of things in the news that ought to disturb you. Like women can't go out in public and be protected by police officers. And now there's like the things of how to you know, uh, protect yourself against police. Like women have to think about that. That's, that's, that's disturbing. It ought not to be. That's not right. It's unjust. I mean, there's so many things in there we could chat about. All the things that disturb you and frustrate you, all the sad things will come untrue one day. That's what we have. That's the kind of hope we have as Christians. And in Revelation 21, nearly the very last chapter of the very last book in the Bible, it tells us more. It says, for those who follow Jesus, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more crying. There will be no more mourning. There will be nothing to mourn. He will abolish death forever. There's not going to be any pain. There'll be a time where every single one of your desires will be met fully and completely. You will not have an unmet desire. And God will be with us in a way that he isn't yet, and we'll get to be his people in a way that we aren't yet. That is the future that we look forward to as Christians. This future grace is what we refer to when we end our prayers with in Manchester as in heaven. This is the kind of thing that we're praying for. One day, every single one of those prayers will come true. And if not in our lifetime, definitely in Jesus's. Now, this future grace that we have has no room for us to hold back from because it is so full of God. There's no room for anything that is not of him to exist in that, that future that we're looking forward to. And the good thing is, uh, we don't bring this into being. It's revealed when Jesus Christ comes 
He's the one who brings it. He's the one who reveals it. He's the one who brings heaven down to earth. Uh, and so we can't bring this into being, even if we wanted to. And maybe we want to, but even if we did, it probably wouldn't work out that great. <laughs> so if that's our hope, and I dare you to come up with something better than that kind of hope. We, I mean, we're only, what, 20 seconds on that? Sounded pretty amazing. We could spend more time. We're not going to. But if that is our hope, how do we get fixed to it? It's a great idea. How do we, get, how do we attach ourselves to it? What does that look like? Well, this is kind of like the rest of what Peter talks about here. Because how we live our daily lives becomes part of this. And God tells us uh, in verse 16, be holy because I'm holy. That means to not give in to the majority culture of Western supremacy that kind of attacks us and assaults us all the time. It, we're called to rebel against that and live as people who are different, live as the people of God. Now, if you know Jesus, before you knew him, you didn't know what the world was about. You didn't know who God was. You didn't know what your calling in life was all about. You were ignorant, and you also had desires that didn't lead to life. They led to death. Anything that leads us to death is called evil. That's what evil is, and we have those kind of desires within us. If you know God now, Paul and Peter's saying here, if you know God now, why are you acting like you don't? Why are you going to the things that you know are going to lead you to death instead of the things that are going to lead you to life? You're called to be a punk rock rebellious people. That's what Peter wrote. Punk rockers is what you, I think is the, if you look in the original Greek, it says punk. <laughs> be holy as God is holy. And, you know, this isn't a desperate attempt at a middle-aged minister trying to be cool, but I really don't think there's anything more punk rock in this world than holiness, than a people who are holy. And the reason why that might sound kind of weird is because we have all wrong views of what holiness is about. We think holiness is like living maybe like a, a monk ascetic life where all the things that give us pleasure, oh, we don't do that. We're too holy. Uh, you know, alcohol, no, we can't drink any of this. We can't eat this. We can only eat, you know, these things that we kind of don't like, like porridge. It'd be like, the only thing you can have is porridge. <laughs> and you have to, like, wear burlap sacks because it can't be comfortable clothes. You can't wear something with cotton and feels good. Then we think that's holy. Like, oh, those people are really holy. They don't even talk to other human beings. That's much easier life to live. Don't talk to humans. That's an easy life to live. Or we have this other idea of holiness means self-righteousness. Like, oh, they're so holy. Like, get off your holy horse. Maybe not say holy horse, high horse. That's what we think about holiness. I think that's, that's, but that is not what holiness is. Holy is whole. If you think of, I mean, the words are similar. To be holy means to be made whole, to be complete. So if you're unholy, if you're not holy, you're lacking, you're incomplete. You don't have, you don't have the completeness that really you were made for, that God has given us. To live a whole life requires all of you going all in with God, all of it. That means you'll be all in with other people in relationships. You'll be all in as we serve each other in the community. You'll risk more if you're living as a holy life. You'll be more punk rock than anybody else because you'll be able to risk more because your identity is not tied to a success or a failure of particular achievements. That means you're free to do way more than anyone else. You can't be a Christian and not rebel. Let's put it, maybe put it that way. You don't have to be into punk rock, okay? But you have to rebel. And the church really is a family of rebels, formerly rebelling against God and his wholeness and now being bought by God. Now we rebel against everything that holds us back from that incompleteness, from that unholiness. And as a church together, we are all working out what it means to live whole lives under God together. Now, of course, in that rebellion of holiness that we're called to, we know we're not perfect because we still do have those desires for things that aren't going to give us life. They're going to give us death. 
It's a little bit like Stockholm Syndrome. If you're familiar with that, it's like people you've been taking as a hostage and, and uh, you develop like a psychological bond with your captors. And that's kind of like what we have with these unholy desires. People who experience Stockholm Syndrome don't, often don't rightly get that their captors are going to cause them harm. Nobody has ever thought a hostage was free. No one has ever thought, oh, they're, they're a hostage, but at least they're able to live you know, like a good, free kind of life. You know, they're able to do what they want. Everyone who is a hostage is held back by definition. And yet we still have those desires for our captors maybe to come through in ways that they're just not going to. Nobody has ever thrived as a hostage. And the only way to live as the rebellious, holy people that God's called us to is to tether our lives to Jesus and his future grace. And what the oppressive captor of Western supremacy teaches us is that there is no future grace. Nothing's going to come in the future. You must have everything now. I mean, if you're into Arcade Fire, they have a whole album about this, and they're not even believers. I want everything now. They have a whole song, We Used to Wait, all about, oh, we used to have to wait for things. Now we don't. We can have everything now. They're mocking it, but we all kind of get that idea. In fact, what we're told is you shouldn't have to wait. That's an injustice. You, you ought to have everything now. So the majority culture out there doesn't deny the existence of a new world. It just kind of puts it in the wrong place. There's no future grace. There's no future hope. You can have it all right now. Of course, to, in order for that to be true, we have to shrink the reality of what grace and hope can really be. If you can have it all now, it's got to be really small. And if there's a part of you that feels incomplete, hey, you can buy this thing and get a sense of wholeness. You can get this, I don't know, thing for your house or thing for your car. You can have this experience. You can make this celebration even better than the last. Now, when we try and rip heaven down to earth on our own terms, what we do is we end up making hell on earth. Only Jesus can make heaven on earth. We make hell on earth. Heaven on our own terms has no room for waiting, has no room for patience, has no room for people who disagree with us, uh, definitely does not have room for people who we have disagreements with. And if we don't surrender to God's hope, what we will do, inevitably what we do is we create our own dead hopes and we tether ourselves to these dead hopes. And that doesn't lead us anywhere but the abyss, that void of space, that wandering. And that is what the Bible calls, is an, uh, calls an empty life. So Peter tells us, and we're gonna look at this more specifically what this looks like. I know we're kind of in like a, the theoretical kind of idea world right now. We haven't specifically kind of gone to what this looks like in real life. But maybe here's a question for you to think about as we go through this, or even kind of right now as you're sitting there. Where are you willingly holding yourself back? What parts of your life are you happy with conforming? When Peter tells us, God, through Peter, tells us to be holy as he is holy, as God is holy, um, I know we're tempted to think of someone else. Oh, I'm really glad that person's listening to this message. They really need to hear this because they really need to grow in this particular area. We all think that. But this is for us first. This is for you first. This is for me first. This is for us first. What, what could that look like? When we hope in Jesus, this tethers us to the one who makes all the crooked straight, who restores the broken and gives us new life, who calls new life even from the dead. This is a God who takes those who are empty and incomplete and makes them whole and complete, gives them new lives. So Peter eventually, okay, he's going to take this plane down a bit. This is like the big kind of view, these first kind of view verses here. 
Uh, let's get a little bit closer to the ground and we'll see how this works out. This next batch of verses, uh, Peter teaches us about the kind of everyday mindfulness of God. This like starts in verse 17. Um, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here. Remember, these were exiles, were wanderers. Uh, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. I think what uh, Peter is going to be teaching us here is be mindful of who God is and what he's done. And what that does is it keeps us tethered to the hope that we have. We have a father in heaven that deserves respect and reverence. It even says kind of fear here. Now, this isn't like I'm afraid that God is going to like smite me in every single possible step that I take, but it's seeing yourself rightly as a small human in light of like a big, massive cosmic God. It's like a, there's a reverence there. Uh, this is not a reality that often comes through our secular lives. I walk to the grocery store. I don't think, oh my gosh, there's a huge God out there. Like, it, I feel like I feel the weight of his glory. Like, I don't think that. Like, we, this is why we need to be reminded of this. We forget this all the time. And God also, in verse 18, not only is that true, but he gives us a reason for this respect. If you look at verse 18, um, in fact, Peter even gives the reason for this here. For you know, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. So you were bought back from your empty way of life, not through like money, uh, but I lost my spot. Uh, but verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's the reason for the reverence is because we were bought by Jesus. He's the one who, who bought us back from that empty, incomplete, unholy life. And for that reason, we give him respect, we give him honor, and we ought to be more mindful as we do our kind of everyday stuff. You were a hostage and you were freed, and it costs God to free you. It costs himself. One of the reasons Jesus died was for you individually, you there, to be free. That's amazing. That's amazing. When we realize what God has done in giving us new life and the lengths that he went to make it so, that leaves a deep and healthy respect that comes from love. There's a reverential fear that, they, that can come from love, not from like a fear that God hates me and wants to kill me somehow. And when we're mindful of that, that helps us live a life tethered to a living hope. And that helps us, instead of it being a thing that we do, it becomes a way of living. Instead of like an add-on or like a bolt-on to your life, it becomes a way of life. And this way of living is based on a God who doesn't play favorites. Uh, the beginning of verse 17, we call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, without prejudice. It doesn't matter if you come from a religious family or a family of criminals, which is really good in my case because half my family are criminals. Works out well. Thank God he doesn't judge me on my father or my family. It doesn't matter if you come from a religion. Uh, it doesn't matter if you come, uh, if you're a minister or if you're a church leader, if you're a missional community leader, if you help on the serving team. You think God's impressed? We don't do those things to impress God, surely. Oh, I really love how Greg set the chairs up. God, just give me that applause. Oh, I love how the coffee was made. We don't do that to impress God. We do that out of a reverential fear. This is part of what it means to be holy as God's holy. Not in a way to buy our holiness or to impress on God that we're so cool, but it's a response to the love that we've been given. It doesn't matter uh, if you come from middle class stock, that doesn't buy a favor. It doesn't matter the shade of your skin, that doesn't matter either. It doesn't matter if you have loads of money, you can't buy your way out of an empty life. Only one thing rescues us from empty lives, and that's the blood of Jesus. Empty lives are tethered to dead hopes. Only one thing will raise us from our empty lives. Only one thing will give us that meaning that we really crave and really want. We didn't earn it, and so we shouldn't act like we did either. 
Another thing that I think is kind of crazy. This is when I read it, I was like, oh, this is amazing. Look at verse 21 with me. Uh, we can't believe by ourselves. Belief isn't even something we do by ourselves. Verse 21, through him, through Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. If you're like, that sounds like it's kind of like going around and around in a circle. Yes, it is. Through Jesus, you believe in God, and God raised Jesus so that you would believe in Jesus, who helps us believe in God so that we could believe in Jesus and then we could believe in God. Notice who's not mentioned here, us. I mean, we're doing the belief, but how are we doing that? Through Jesus. God raised Jesus so that we would believe in him. Even our belief is a grace from God. So if you're struggling with belief, yeah, if you're wrestling with it, yeah, know that first, it's not about you trying harder. And often when we feel like, oh, I just don't know if I believe enough and therefore I'm a bad Christian, actually bringing that lack of belief to God the way that Thomas, I mean, Thomas gets a bad rap doubting Thomas, but he brought his, his unbelief to the Lord. That's an amazing thing. That's what we're all called to do. Having more faith uh, before we do anything, it's actually all about what Jesus has already done for us. In our empty lives, Jesus is the one who fills us up. The only path to a full life, the only way is for Jesus to rescue you from your emptiness into his wholeness, from being a hostage to being free. And the only way to even believe that, guess what? That's what Jesus does too. What kind of, what is this? This is like too good to be true. It's too good and it's true. I love it. The father raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him. That's a huge, massive cosmic event. In fact, the way the Bible talks about that, it's like the crux of all of history was that event. And one of the reasons was so that your faith right there, sitting there listening to this, would be in God. So we can be tethered to a living hope. So if there are parts of you that feel like they're floating out there, kind of in the abyss, maybe you don't feel like your whole self is out there, but you're like, oh, I do know this part of my life. It's just kind of wandering a bit. What would it look like to have Jesus speak into that? I don't know the answer to that. Well, I know some of your stories, but even in that specific situation, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you don't either, but I do know that Jesus knows about that. He knows, so we get to ask him to rescue you from that aspect of emptiness. We get to ask him for the strength to have faith and hope in those places. And what we do is we read his words so that we can become familiar to them. So it's not like, so they don't feel foreign when we read them, but we recognize them as a voice of a father who we know really well. And the words coming from a loving father versus some kind of like distant king, those words definitely change. They definitely uh, alter us. And we get to bring others into this. And I'll say this every single week uh, if I have to, and I, I probably will because I say it to myself as well. Every you that you read in here, they're all plural. We read this and say you and we're reading it individually. Every single you in these verses are plural. You, plural. You, the church. So if you're thinking, oh, this is what it means for me individually. Yes, that's true, but that's not what Peter's teaching. Peter's teaching, yes, it's you collectively, corporately. We are called to be holy as he's holy. Uh, individually, yeah, that's true, but what Peter's talking about is us as a, as a family together. And going alone is not in line with how God has called us to live. That's just not what he's done. The more you're mindful of all the stuff here, that we, a few things here we've been talking about, the more you're mindful of that in your everyday life of who God is and what he's done, that keeps us tethered to a living hope. That keeps us tethered. It's interesting in that the way we think about the present affects how we think about the future and vice versa. 
What we think about the future really does affect how we're going in the present. If we think we're going over here and then we realize, oh no, actually the Bible says we're going here, then we go this way and it changes like the literal next steps we take, any kind of destination we go to. I mean, if you're being mindful, uh, a product of that means your faith will meet the real world. It will spill over into relationships. If we are only being mindful, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness and what that might mean, but if we're only being mindful, we're not going to really be so much good in the world. Maybe it'd be helpful for us in like the way we think about things, but it must spill over into relationships. And that's what we kind of get to next, where Peter goes to, is our mindfulness of who God is and what he's done leads us to everyday lives of love. Uh, Especially look at um, verse 22 with me. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. This authentic love. We can't love in a vacuum. Love requires other beings. And this is like in the everydayness of our lives, how we're supposed to live. Sincere, deeply, from the heart. And this is the difference between a facade and a family. Churches were really good at putting up facade. I mean, and we're all really good at putting on the Sunday face. Like, this is what I look like on a Sunday when I'm around, like, religious people or Christians. Uh, but we're not so great at really being our true selves. We're often more of our true selves around our family. When we're just kind of, like, lounging around. You're allowed to eat crisps on the sofa with your family, but not with your church family. You got to, like, you know, sit proper. Chris, oh, I might have one. Okay. You know? But I don't want to go too crazy. Now, we want to live more like a family, right? We don't have that thing in the back just to, for, to be, like, good words on a thing. We're a gospel-formed family on mission. We really try and live that out. If we're, we're not a gospel-formed facade on mission, because it wouldn't even work. We're a gospel-formed family on mission. A facade can put on a face. A facade will avoid people they have issues with. A facade is not real. It is empty. It's like a film set. I should have asked Sarah ahead of time what film sets actually look like, although she probably goes on location more often than not. But I know, at the very least, uh, you have a, like, what looks like a storefront, and you only have to do like one little step around the corner. You're like, oh, there's nothing there. It's completely empty. And maybe if a strong wind was to come, that thing would fall over, and it's not there anymore. And actually, it didn't really matter if it was there to begin with because it's not really doing anything. It looks like a store, but it's not a real store. In verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, that this connects with the previous thing. Even though we have that chapter break, really verse 3 is part of that previous chapter. Uh, it says, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, there's hypocrisy, there's envy, there's slander. Malice, deceit, envy, and slander, we cannot commit those things unless we're around other people. Those are other people-orientated sins. That's what it means to live as a facade. We might be with people, but we'll have a low level of malice towards them. Or we even slander them, like talk about them behind their back, but in ways that we can kind of sort out to be socially acceptable. You know, we all have ways that we kind of get around those things. Other people may never know that you envy them or that you slander them. They could be completely clueless, but you know. You can dress it up any way you like, but you know. And living that way, it's all part of an empty life, the one that Jesus paid to rescue you out of. If you follow Jesus, you've already been rescued from that empty life. Why would you want to go back? Nobody wants to be a hypocrite, but we all struggle with it, right? We're all there. We're all recovering hypocrites together. That's what any kind of group of anything is, especially the church. But if we lean into that, we're only starving our own souls. A family, the way the Bible talks about a family, not maybe like the dysfunctional ones that we all have experience with, but a functional family, the way the Bible talks about it, 
is, uh, is more than that. It works through the difficult things. A family prays for each other, is intentional with each other, will casually hang out with each other without there being an agenda. They love each other, is quick to forgive, and like actually forgive, not just say it, but actually act like it. A family rallies around each other. We don't pick each other off. If you have had a taste of God, as it says here, and the end of verse three, now you've tasted that the Lord is good. If you've had that good taste, malice, deceit, envy, and slander, they have no room in your life. They just don't. Verse 23 says you have been born again. And we learned about that last week. We learned actually last week you were born anew through the resurrection of Jesus. This week, interestingly, it says you've been born through the word, born anew through the word. The resurrection and the word kind of on the same plane here. This new birth is a new life, one that's different from the empty life where we were formerly a hostage. And now we're called to not live in the way that others tell us to live. Not in that way, the majority culture way, the easier way to live, the way that Jesus teaches us in the Bible. So if you have tasted this and you do know the Lord is good, this must affect your everyday lives. It's not like, this would be a good idea if, if, you know, if we live this way. Actually, it's, it's a requirement. It must. We are called to everyday lives of love, not everyday lives of self-preservation. We're not talking everyday lives of, of uh, doing what we think is best on our own terms. Everyday lives of love. And to be a family requires this radical other-centeredness that can't actually happen unless we're born through Jesus' resurrection and through the word. Now, none of these verses do we read. And God says, this is actually quite easy to do. Verse uh, 26 of chapter one. Oh, it's lost. We don't have that. Not there. It's never there. No one says it's easy. We know it's not easy, right? Everyone knows it's difficult. Oh, we're all here together trying to sort this thing out. We're a family. And all families have baggage, especially your own. Not just the church, but in all kinds of life. Every, you know, we all have those people who get at us. You know, maybe we can, maybe we know why. Maybe we just don't, just, I just don't know why I hate Janet from HR. I just hate her. I hate her. The way she eats her crisps, the way she says hello, like the way she even gives me my, oh, I, just, I just do not like her. I don't know why. You know, we all have those people who get at us. Some within the church, some without the church, maybe both if you're really lucky. So how do we get through this? If you want to move from living as that empty facade into an authentic family, how do we do this? Now, if we didn't talk maybe about a, a kind of um, practical thing, we would kind of be left to like, okay, sort yourself out. Here's just a really quick, these are three basic, really easy steps to think of how to get through this, to lean more into everyday lives of love. The first thing is welcome to the club. Now you might say, Greg, technically that is not a step, that is just a statement. But it is a step, because let me tell you, we're all in this together. To be, well, to be part of the club means you recognize, I don't have my stuff together, neither does anyone else. I desperately need Jesus to work in my life as much as anyone else, and I want to work in that in my life. That's what part of the club is. Welcome to the club. We're all in this together. No one's above anyone here. We're all the same. So first, welcome to the club. Second, pray for them daily. It is really hard to slander someone when you pray for them every single day especially if you just prayed for them before you walked into church and you saw them. Like, oh, I can't, okay, yes, hold together. I gotta work hard. It's hard to be in an ongoing state of malice towards someone when you dedicate your prayer life to them. And what happens when we pray? You know, we have these, these prayer cards. We did this for six weeks. I hope it wasn't just like a, I prayed for six weeks and then I didn't after that. 
Um, these are things hopefully we can continue to, to use. I, I was talking to somebody who um, put someone down on here that they had some kind of like conflict with, and they said it actually really helped them in forgiving the other person. And that shouldn't really be a surprise. That's how God works. Not only does God, you shouldn't, and also, <laughs> don't just pray for you and that person. Pray literally for that other person. You have to know, I want, I, I want to pray for that person to succeed. I want to pray for that person to be blessed. I want that person to have more friends, more family, whatever the things are. That will change your heart. God will work through those prayers to not only help that person, but also work in your heart as well. And you'll find maybe you need him to work in your life more than someone else's. So pray for them. Uh, the third one is go out of your way in acts of love. You do not need to feel it before you do it. If you need to feel it before you did anything, nobody go to work tomorrow. Maybe you wouldn't even show up today, right? This works the same kind of way as prayer. Just as you pray into it, work into it. Your faith in Jesus will lead you to love someone who you find difficult to love. And if it hasn't yet, you haven't quite got this faith in Jesus thing. Because loving people who don't deserve it, that's kind of like Jesus' whole thing. And if that's who we're going to follow, we're going to be acting in that same kind of way. This might mean saying hello to someone you'd rather avoid. This might mean complimenting them on something small. It might mean sending them a card, inviting them either by themselves or with others for a meal or for whatever. Even today, even for, no, if you get a, um, an invite for lunch, that doesn't necessarily mean the person is like, you know, envy against you or something like that. So uh, maybe that's a good passive-aggressive thing we could develop in this church. You want to come over for lunch? You know? Oh, I got a problem with me now. They invited me for lunch. Now, whatever it is, it really it doesn't need to be any kind of, it doesn't need to be some grand gesture. Set yourself the lowest possible bar and just do that thing. But it needs to be something. And here's the thing. These things, they're difficult, yes, but they are not options. It's not like, here is maybe a good way to live. If you're a Christian, this is how we live. That's how we have to live. And only if we're tethered to Jesus' living hope can we really live this way. There's no other way we can live into this unless we have the future grace working in us in the present. So we think back maybe to our astronaut that we started with. It's important for that tether to be strong. Without it, of course, we float away. It's also important to be tethered to the right thing. To have a strong tether only to be latched onto something going the wrong way is completely disastrous. It's important to have hope, and it's important to have the right object of that hope. For followers of Jesus, our hope is in the one who has rescued us from being hostages. We didn't leave, he didn't leave us uh, with our ignorant, empty lives. The one who rebirths us into a new family, one that isn't based into our own gain, but in how we can give to other people. The one who's given us words for us to live by and to learn from. This Lord, this Jesus, will be coming again. He will actually be doing that in the future. We actually really believe that. He will be making the crooked straight. He will be restoring the broken. And one day, the earth will reflect heaven because, heaven, because heavens and earth will be one place. They will not be in two places. They will meet, and they'll be in one place. If that's the ending, if that's our trajectory, this changes how we go about the present. If that's where we're going, that has to alter how we live today. If that's where we're going, even as we pray in Manchester as in heaven, if we pray that, this has to change how we live now. We now get to reflect that reality. Not to rip it down, but to say this is what's coming. And the only way we can actually follow through is by Jesus' death and resurrection. He made us holy so we get to act that way. He gave us a new life so we can live that way. 
He gave us belief so that we can be actually mindful of him in our everyday lives. He gave us a new family so that we can be functional members of that family. He's given us a living hope so we can be tethered to that living hope. And the bread and the cup, or in our case, the wafer and the juice, are symbols of what Jesus paid for for our new lives. These are, are under your chairs for COVID-safe uh, communion elements. Uh, verse 19 says that we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And the wafer represents Jesus' body. The juice represents Jesus' blood. If you're living a new life that he has bought, please join us in celebrating this together. There are two reasons to not join in with us. And nobody's watching. Nobody really cares if you actually take it or not. This is really between you and the Lord. There's two reasons to not do this. One, if you don't believe this yet, we're not out to make religious kind of people. We're out to make people who follow Jesus. So if you don't believe this, don't do the, the thing. That's a hypocritical kind of religious person. Don't be merely religious. Only join in if you believe. Secondly, we've talked a lot about relationships. Uh, and if there is someone here whom you do have malice towards or envy or slander or all those kinds of things that we talked about, someone who you've been unkind towards and haven't yet asked for forgiveness, or someone who has wronged you and you need to tell them so that they can apologize, uh, it's important for us to actually talk about these things with each other. Don't do the religious thing and celebrate some kind of outward sign that is not actually true inside of you or in the relationships that we have in this church. And also, don't put that off forever. This isn't a something of like, oh, maybe in next month I'll talk to this person no, we have a time here where we get to do that. What we will do is we'll, we celebrate communion while we sing together. We sing three songs together. That's more than ample time for you to go up to somebody and just say, I'm sorry, I'm like this. Can you pray with me? Or when you said this thing that really hurt, I, I just wanted you to know. Um, and, and then they'll ask, you should ask for forgiveness and you should grant forgiveness. That's, that's why we have this time here. If someone comes to you today, grant that forgiveness. Uh, and if you need to go to somebody, have a quick word for them and, and ask about it. And then, only after you do that, then you can eat and drink, and eat and drink together. That's what be holy as I'm holy means. And, and if you've ever done that before, maybe you haven't, maybe you're like, that scares the daylights out of me. Yeah, it might scare the daylights out of you, that's all right. But when you do it, there's something way more meaningful about taking something about what a family does when you actually live out how a family's supposed to live. We're not here to make religious hypocrites. And if God has said something in his word that endures beyond creation, that endures beyond us. We didn't even get that much into that section here. Um, if he, but if he tells us something in this word that we have to submit to it, whether kind of we like it or not. 